Amen. Well, thank you. Uh, it's always wonderful to see everybody up here uh, with unveiled faces. Um, it's interesting, as I was preparing the message for this weekend, um, I was really upset that Pastor Paul wasn't going to be here. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm not going to lie to you, I, I, I know almost all of you uh, in this room, and yet I'm still nervous uh, because this message is, is a little... Um, um, I appreciated Eli's message last week because it was very encouraging. So I am going to uh, read to you from 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 13. Uh, hear now the word of the Lord. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, and do not become idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all of these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. Thus for the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you that we're able to come in freedom, Lord, enjoying you together as one body. But we know that there are those who are watching still at home, and I pray that you would encourage them, that though they are not present with us physically, Lord, we are present together. I pray for each person here in this room, that we all, including myself, Lord, would have ears to hear your word. Lord, it convicts me, and so I pray, Lord, that it would be an encouragement to pursue you more and to realize our deep need of you, Lord. We love you, and I pray that you would receive all the glory this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. What is the greatest threat any man or woman faces? It is not Democrats, socialists, communists, Republicans, Tea Party, or any other political entity. It is not uncontrolled crime or a police state. It's not ecological disaster. It's not racism on a grand scale or the projects of environmental extremists. It's not nuclear holocaust or the earth getting hit by an asteroid. And despite what the media might say, it's certainly not global warming. All of these could lead to circumstances that we may not like. Some of them could lead to widespread death, even. 
But even physical death is not man's greatest enemy, for that only is a transition into eternity. It is what will happen in eternity that is most important. Will that man or woman spend an eternity under God's just condemnation in hell or in heaven by his grace? The greatest threat any person will face that which will the greatest threat any person will face is that which will kind of prevent us from receiving God's gift of mercy and grace in Jesus Christ. Certainly things like secularism, materialism, hedonism, humanism, false religions are a great threat for they can keep a person from hearing the truth, from receiving the truth, and locked into a system of belief that are far from the God of the Bible. But the greater threat comes from those who claim to lead to God, but in fact lead away from Him. Like That's one of the biggest things, the greatest things to the... Threats to the human soul are the false prophets and false teachers. They convince people that they are, that they have the truth and that they will be with Jesus in heaven, but instead it's a lie that leads to eternal condemnation. This is why Jesus, who is so tender and kind, is very harsh and fierce in the face of these false teachers and prophets. That is why he gave such a strong warning in Matthew chapter 7 about those who call him Lord, Lord, and claim to do all these things in his name. And he says, depart from me, I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. At times, adding to the greatest threat can be ourselves. This morning's an exhortation for all of us to examine our lives and actions in a very sobering way. And let me start by using an example from Paul David Tripp, who it's a little little close to home for me, personally. Late on a Thursday night, he says, you go into your teenager's room to ask him something. You can barely open the door because of the debris that is in the way. There are dirty clothes, spoiled food items, and pieces of tech gear in a tangled pile from yesteryear. You can't believe it. You've had enough. So you explode. Not like I've ever done this. I never thought one of my children would turn out to be such a slob. Don't you have an ounce of self-respect? I should take every piece of your junk and lock it away and leave you in an empty room until you put on your big boy pants and grow up. Why, in my day, I would never have thought of treating my stuff this way. Now unpack this statement with me. As you're going off, your teenager isn't saying to himself, my, this is really helpful. This is a truly wise person who is saying very helpful things to me. I'm so thankful that this person is my parent right now. That's not what the teenager is thinking. Because in that moment, you're not a part of what God would do in the heart and life of that child. You're in the way of it. And why are you in the way? Well, the final part of that statement gives it away. In my day, you say, it's our self-righteousness that permits us to be angry and unkind to others. It's our self-righteousness that permits us to be angry and unkind to our children. We're not greeting his or her laziness with gracious parental wisdom because we think we are essentially different from them. Now, this illustration is really a segue into our thinking. We can apply it to all manner of things and situations that we see around us. We look at the news and all that's going on in our world today. 
and think, I'm so glad I'm on the right side of things. Look at all those struggling in their marriages. Maybe we even look at our own spouses. We look at our coworkers. We look at those riding on the streets. We look at those in the opposite camp in the political spectrum, and we think, gosh, they must be a couple cookies short of a dozen mentally. Right? I'm so glad I'm better off than that. I would never do the things that they do. I would never think the way that they think. I'm so glad. We're basically saying if they were as righteous as me, they wouldn't be making those choices and decisions. When we assign to ourselves a righteousness that we don't have, we expect people around us to be as righteous as we think we are. And we greet them with judgment when they're not. Like the Pharisees, we tie burdens on others that we're not able to bear ourselves. An example of this is when Jesus confronts the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 12. What was wrong with the Pharisees? We must remember that they were the most highly regarded figures of their day. They believed the scriptures and had made it their duty to obey them in every conceivable way possible, in the smallest of particulars. The very name meant set apart, separated ones, meaning that they were trying to separate themselves from all the contamination of sin. They were not flagrant sexual offenders. They were not outright thieves or murderers. When the Pharisees of Jesus in his parables said that he was neither a robber nor an evildoer nor an adulterer and that he fasted twice a week and he gave a tithe of all that he acquired, he was being honest. This was the way that these men actually lived. So what was wrong with them? Matthew 23, verses 4-7 through gives the answer. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all of their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. Their character was the exact opposite of that character which is required of the citizens of the kingdom of God, as Christ described in Matthew chapter 18. This meant that in spite of their religious professions and these stringent legal practices that they tried to obey, they did not actually know God and had not been changed inwardly by Him. They should have been humble, compassionate, loving, and forgiving as Jesus was. Likewise, that should define us as a church and as, an, as, as a people of God. But at times, it seems to elude a lot of Christians. We struggle with three main things for these people did, these Pharisees that Jesus brings to light. They were actually hypocritical, as verse 3 says in Matthew 23. They did not practice what they preached. They were indifferent. They tied up these heavy loads on people, but they themselves didn't move a finger to help them. And they were proud. Everything they did was to be seen by men. These men wanted to be teachers. This is what it meant to have Moses' seat. That's what he was referring to. They were actually a, there was actually a stone seat at the front of most synagogues, as you, as you guys may know. And rabbis sat down to teach there. And Jesus had done this himself when he preached in Nazareth in, uh, in Luke 4.20. We preserve this idea when we speak of a, of a professorial chair at a university. 
The Pharisees have been using their position as teachers to get praise for themselves while making it nearly impossible for any of those they taught to actually learn any truths from Scripture and come to know God. And Jesus strongly condemned this sort of behavior. Now let's get back to 1 Corinthians 10. Let me build a case for what I think is very applicable to all of us. Paul the Apostle and the other New Testament authors frequently look to the wilderness wanderings of Israel as examples after their liberation from Egyptian slavery as this cautionary tale for us, as an example for the new covenant people of God. Paul notes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1-5, through 5, that most of those who left Egypt never entered the promised land because the Lord was not pleased with them. Moreover, brethren, he says, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased. For their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. In verses 1 through 4, the Apostle Paul links the Gentile believers in Corinth to the Jewish forefathers. Now that is an amazing connection that no ordinary Jewish theologian would have done. But Paul knows that all of mankind is made by the same God. We all have the, the same spiritual offspring. Has a, I mean, all of his spiritual offspring has a, a common genealogy. In his other letters, he asserts that Abraham is the father of all those who have faith. So he is able to link the Old Testament directly into the present experience of these Corinthian believers. Verse 5 says, But with most of them God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Many of the the Israelites who were redeemed by God out of Egypt and who were led, fed, and kept by God in Christ in the desert were overthrown. They were disqualified from finishing the journey or the race because of their lack of self-control and lack of discipline in spiritual matters rooted from a lack of faith in the coming Messiah. And verses 6 through 11 explain that the history of these people is a lesson for us demonstrating that we should not engage in idolatry, sexual immorality, or testing God, lest we meet the same fate that they did. Quote in verses 6, Now these things became our example, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they lusted. And do not become idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain, as some of them also complained, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. The apostle was not the first to use the wilderness generation as a negative example to us. Hundreds of years before Paul, a psalmist by the name of Asaph also turned to the wilderness generation as an example. In Psalm 78, he does it through verses 21 through 39, but in verse 36 through 37 says this, But they flattered him with their mouths, they lied to him with their tongues, their heart was not steadfast towards him, and they were not faithful to his covenant. First generation of Israelites is one of the best examples in, in Scripture of what not to do. 
because those Israelites illustrate several ways in which they deceive themselves. And we oftentimes look at those Israelites and go, what were they thinking? Like, what were they thinking? They had manna. They had all these things. If I was there. The first thing that Paul warns about is not to be idolaters, as some of them were. If you've ever said to yourself, I can't believe so-and-so believes that. They must watch Fox News or CNN all the time. I can't believe they are so obsessed with clothes or shoes. If I had that much money, I wouldn't be spending it there. Then listen closely. We all know the story of the Israelites and the golden calf. They referred to the calf as the God who brought them out of Egypt in Exodus 32.4. Aaron builds an altar to this golden calf, this idol, and even offers the same sacrifices, the burnt and peace offerings, customarily offered to God alone. Yet somehow they thought that they could use this pagan idol to worship the true God. Then Paul continues in 1 Corinthians here that the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Not pray, play. Eating and drinking refers to this excessive feasting that they did, or partying as we might know it today. And the word play here is a euphemism for sexual relations. It's the same word translated as caressing in Genesis 26.8. Some 3,000 people who had instigated this party, this idolatrous, immoral party, at Sinai were put to death. It's kind of a big deal. We think, well, it's, it's not going to happen today. I don't need to necessarily listen to that. That was back in the day. Old Testament. It's the same God. Some of the believers at Corinth had reverted to their old way of worship as well. Likewise, too many of us have reverted to the ways of the world when it comes to worshiping God. And too many of us find hypocrisy at root when we judge and condemn other people when we ourselves are practicing in much the same way. But wait a second, Dan. I come to church. I read the Bible each morning. Right? I do what I'm supposed to do. Surely you aren't suggesting that I'm guilty of this. Perhaps not. I don't want to be too heavy-handed here. But I don't want to suggest that anyone sins but my own. But many people idolize in some capacity a preacher, a worship leader, a certain band, a charismatic leader, a political figure, a sports figure who may claim Christianity and attribute more to them than they should. We do this all the time with pastors. We too often believe ourselves to be above this heinous reality as if we were better somehow than they were. But too often, we stand condemned as well as we join our worship with God with worldly thinking and actions. The second thing that Paul reminds the Corinthians is of sexual immorality. If you've ever believed yourself to be above this issue that the Bible talks about, then perhaps we need to listen carefully. If at any point we have ever desired someone outside of our marriage, if at any point we pay for movies with sexually immoral conduct in them, if at any point we have looked on the internet at the wrong things, if at any point we have tried to dress for attention in a way that isn't honoring to God, posted to social media, content that is inappropriate, then listen carefully. He states, nor let us act immorally, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. The incident that Paul is referring to is recorded in Numbers. 
While in the wilderness, the people, quote, in Numbers 25, 1-2, began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they invited the people to sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. Idolatry and immorality are closely associated in virtually every single ancient religion. They were especially associated at Corinth, where the temple at Aphrodite had a thousand prostitutes. That's a lot. It's clear from Paul's warning that the self-confident Corinthian believers were no more immune to immorality than idolatry. Thinking they could carelessly live around this sort of thing without being corrupted is a bit naive. As the Apostle already spoke about in 1 Corinthians 6.18, immorality is to be fled from at all costs, not flirting with it. You see, in my 20 plus years of ministry, I've noticed a lot of people look to their pastors and leaders as examples of Christian liberty and freedom and live their lives likewise. We don't look to Pastor Paul or Jen on what we can or cannot do. We look to God's Word and the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. Christ gives us freedom so that we may serve Him more effectively and in righteousness, not so that we can see how close we can come to unrighteousness. Many of us fall into moral problems simply because of our overconfidence in ourselves. When temptations come, we think we can handle them, often finding out too late that we can't. The third thing that Paul warns about, the apostle here, is trying to tempt God, tempting God, which is closely associated with contentment. He states this, Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Numbers 21 gives the example that Paul is referring to here. In 21.5, it says, And the people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. If you've ever thought to yourself, man, if I was in their shoes, or if I had their money, or if I had their house, I sure wouldn't be complaining like them. You see, we, um, we forget that God provides our manna, and He provides our daily bread, our spiritual water every single day. But sometimes we feel like that's not enough. What we have, what we've received. And we complain, and we long, and look, and we look what other people have, and we want it. You see, these people, these Israelites, wanted more variety and more spice. They complained and complained, and we often sit in some seat of self-righteousness, and as we look on judgment to others, to those who complain about themselves and about their situations, as if we ourselves don't do that very single thing every single day. We often try and use our freedom to push God to the limit trying to see how much we can get out of him and how much we can get by with without him. Ananias and Sapphira sold some property to raise money for the church in Jerusalem, keeping part of the proceeds to themselves, which was very much within their Christian liberty to do so. But they decided to appear more righteous, more genuinely great, more generous by claiming they gave the entire amount. And their lying hypocrisy pushed the Lord too far. Many Christians in the Corinthian church were pushing their liberty to the limits to see how much of the flesh they could indulge in, how much, 
how much they could do, how much they could drink, how much they could consume, how much of the world they could enjoy. Like some of us today, we say things like, this is the age of grace. We are free, and God is forgiving. We can't lose our salvation, so why not get everything out of life that we can? The part about God's grace is true, but that does not lead us into getting everything out of life that we can. They are unrelated. The Israelites found the answer to that question in Numbers 21.6, and the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. Don't forget that God's people have always lived under grace. Always. Every blessing Israel had, including her being called as God's special people, was by His grace. Israel had been delivered from Egypt by His grace, and she was being sustained and protected by His grace. When Israel put the Lord God to the test, however, Israel discovered rather quickly that God had limits which he would not let them cross over without punishment. Paul confirms this when he's talking about himself in 1 Timothy 1.16. However, for this reason I obtain mercy, so that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Other translations say perfect patience. It's not unlimited patience. It's perfect. He knows. Yes, we have grace in Christ. Absolutely. I don't need to remind too many people of that here. It's by grace alone that we are saved, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we read from Scripture alone for the glory of God alone. That is without question. But it doesn't give us reason to just go on living how we want to live. We have a Lord, a Savior. My encouragement, not only to myself, but to anyone listening, is that we should never presume upon that grace. Paul states in Romans 6.1, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? The last thing that Paul brings up in this section has to do with grumbling and complaining. He states, Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. After Korah and the sons of Korah were destroyed by the Lord in Numbers Chapter 16, verses 32 through 35, verse 41, shows us our context for this. All the congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, saying, you are the ones who have caused the death of the Lord's people. God decided, because of this complaint about divine justice, that he immediately sends a plague that kills 14,700 people. The destroyer that Paul mentions here was the same one who killed the firstborn in Egypt who would kill 70,000 men because of David's census that he takes in 2 Samuel, and who would destroy an entire Assyrian army in 2 Chronicles 32. Complaining, something I've exhorted on in the past, is a dissatisfaction with God's sovereign will and rule for our lives and the lives of others, and is a sin that he does not take lightly, even for those of us under grace. So why am I mentioning the Israelites so much? What does this have to do with the illustration in the beginning, everything. And here's why. God's chosen people were the Israelites. This is known and this is no surprise to us. They were under grace and so are we. Yet the rub is that we have a tendency to forget that grace like a vapor in the wind. We love to sit on seats of judgment 
and are so free with our self-righteousness and our self-righteous opinions that we can lose our saltiness in the world. Matthew chapter 5, verses 12 through 16 state, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. According to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9-10, through 10, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. In no place does that say, so live how you want to live. And as I just noted, in self-centeredness and self-will, they tried to live on the edge of their liberties. And they fell into temptation and sin. Overconfidence seemed to be their undoing. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 12-13. through 13, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except as is such is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with a temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Here we get to some good stuff. Let him who stands take heed lest he fall. What a powerful statement from the Holy Spirit and what a blessing for us to hear. Proverbs sixteen eighteen: Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. It's easy to substitute confidence in ourselves when we should have confidence in the Lord. Because of God's grace over us, because of His guidance and blessing, we oftentimes take that for granted and take the credit for the work that He has done in our lives. If you've ever said to yourself, man, I've studied a lot of the Bible, and I'm at this place of real knowledge finally. I don't mean to offend, but that is not our doing. It is by God's grace alone that He reveals His truth to us. Sure, we can search it out. But but getting things to stick in our minds, if you're anything like me, is like trying to nail gel to a wall. Let's just be honest. But His truth sticks. And it's by His grace, through His Word, preached faithfully to us and written down by others through the ages, quote-unquote, that we have arrived It's also very easy to become enamored of our freedom in Christ, that we forget that we are His, bought with a price, a terrible price, and called to obedience to His Word and service as the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. The Bible is very clear with several stories of overconfidence. The entire book of Esther centers around the plan of a proud man, an overconfident man who has saw his plan absolutely destroyed. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, taunted Israel with the boast that her God could no more save her than the gods of the other lands save them. And this is when the angel of the Lord went out, the destroyer, and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. It says in Isaiah 36, uh, 37, verses 36 through 38, that a few days after this, even the defeated king of Assyria returns home 
and it's assassinated by two of his sons, and the throne is taken by the third. Yet don't do that. Peter is another example who would boast, Lord, I will never deny you. Never. In fact, I would rather die. The church at Sardis, which Paul will get it to in later, our Paul, Pastor Paul, will get to later in, sermon, in, in some sermons, hopefully in about four years, was proud of her reputation of being spiritually alive. But the Lord warned that she was really spiritually dead and needed to repent in Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. And if she did not, God warned that he would come and take her like a thief in the night in verse 3. I can go on and on, but for the sake of brevity, I won't. You see, we as Christians, we, become, we can become so self-confident and become less and less dependent upon God's Word and God's Spirit and become careless in our living and judgmental of others. And as our carelessness and overconfidence increases, so does our propensity to sin. In other words, when we think our spiritual life is the strongest, our theology the soundest, our morals the purest, that's when we need to be most on our guard. We do this by recognizing the current state of our hearts. And we should never compare ourselves with others. Just as the gospel of Jesus Christ affirms that we are saved, not because of anything we have done, lest we should boast, but only affirms the work of Christ on our behalf, so too this should color absolutely everything that we do. And don't forget what drove Christ to the cross in the first place, which necessitated it. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from this reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Galatians 6.14, but God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So we do not stand in our own strength lest we fall. We don't stand in our own accomplishments lest we fall. We stand in the grace of Christ. Finally, we get to the end of this mighty section. After this strong warning to the Corinthians, wasn't that fun, uh, about self-confidence and pride, Paul gives strong words of encouragement about God's help when we are tempted. In verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with a temptation will also make way of escape that you may be able to bear it. The basic meaning of temptation here is simply to test or prove. It has no negative connotation. Whether it becomes a test for righteousness or a test uh, to, uh, 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 for a temptation, a test that for evil depends on our response. If we resist in God's power through God's spirit from God's word, it's a test that proves our faithfulness. If we do not resist, it becomes an opportunity to sin. 
The Bible uses the word in both contexts. And I believe it's both that Paul may have in mind here because of the phrase that you may be able to bear it. See, God's tests are never an attempt to solicit evil from us. According to James chapter 1, verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, as he himself does not tempt anyone. By evil is the important key between the two types of temptation here. In the wilderness, God tested Jesus by righteousness, whereas Satan tested him by evil. A temptation comes, becomes Tempting to evil only when a person is, quote, carried away and enticed by his own lusts. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, according to James 1.14. Earlier in his letter, James wrote, Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. That same word trials and testing come from the Greek, the root, which is tempted, in verse 13 in our study. God often brings circumstances in our lives to test us. All of us know this. If you're breathing... You have been tested or tempted in one way or another. But our response to them proves our faithfulness or unfaithfulness. How we react to things like unmet expectations, financial difficulties, health issues, home problems, will always test our faith and our reliance upon God. If we do not turn to God, to Him, the same circumstances can make us bitter, resentful, and angry. Rather than thanking God for our, our trials, as James advises us in chapter 1, we may even accuse God because our emotions are dictating our so-called truths. No one can claim who is a Christian that he or she is overwhelmed by temptation or that the devil made me do it. No one, not even Satan, can make us sin. He cannot even make an unbeliever sin. No, temptation is inherently stronger. No temptation is inherently stronger than our spiritual resources in Christ through the Holy Spirit. To believe anything else is a lie. People sin because we are willing to sin. We willingly want to. Even the Son of God was, according to Hebrews 4.15, tempted in all things as we are. And because of that, according to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. And since Paul reminds us in verse 13 of chapter 10 here, all temptations are common to man, we can confess our sins to one another, and we can bear one another's burdens in Galatians 6.2. We're all in the same boat. However, we believe that the Christian has his heavenly Father's help in resisting temptation. God is faithful. He remains true to our, his word. When our faithlessness is tested, we have God's own faithfulness as our resource. We can absolutely be certain that God will, allow, will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able. That is God's response when we say, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And I oftentimes say, well, God, he gives me more than I can handle every single day. Absolutely. But I'm talking about temptation and testing here. He will not let us experience a test we're unable to meet. But with temptation, he continues in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. The way suggests that there's only one way. How do we escape the temptation, particularly the temptation to think more highly of ourselves than we should, particularly the temptation of self-righteousness that we've been discussing? There's only one way. No matter what it is, it's always the same. It's through it. That's where you get the word bear. We escape temptation not by getting out of it, 
but through it. God never takes us out, but he sees us through by making us able to endure it and bear it. God's own spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. It was the Father's will that the Son be there. And Jesus did not leave until all three temptations were over. He met the temptations head on. He escaped the temptations by enduring and bearing them in the Father's power with the Word of God. Likewise, we bear it, we go through it, not alone, but with the Holy Spirit indwelling us with the power of the Word of God. We deal with others with grace when we walk around with a humble realization of how deep our need for grace was and continues to be. When we enter the teenager's room with a recognition that we are more like him than unlike him. There is compassion in the way we handle his wrongs. Likewise, with every single person we interact with in this world until we die, though grace changes absolutely everything in us, that same grace that changed us is undeserved in us. We would do well to give grace to others who do not deserve it as well. That spouse, that coworker, the person on the news holding signs that we do not agree with, the person in the ghetto or the gang member on the street, that grumbling person in the grocery store, the person driving next to you, those in offices in our government, the person sitting next to us in the pews. These are the people who are more like us than we'd care to admit. When we admit that there are a few struggles in others that don't exist in our own lives in some way, we can begin to caress them with God's grace rather than hammering them with the law. The appropriateness of our response to others is directly related to the accuracy of our own view of ourselves. And for that, there is grace too. Remember the gospel of Jesus Christ when we come into temptations, whatever they may be. Remember that as we stumble, remember that as we succeed, remember that as we resist, that we gain knowledge that we think is so accurate. Remember that as we succumb, it is grace that picks us up. The grace of the sweet cross of Jesus Christ and the blood that was poured out for us. The grace of the resurrection and the victory over sin and death. The undeservedness of it all silences us. It is grace that beckons us to no longer see ourselves as better than we are, but grace that seeks to glorify God in the members of our bodies. Do we think too highly of ourselves? Because the wilderness generation never offered genuine repentance, the people of that era did not live to see God's blessing in the land. We must be on guard against the ingratitude and hypocrisy of our own hearts, or we will prove ourselves to lack genuine preserving faith. Let us examine ourselves and seek to follow the Lord in truth. How we view others is directly related to how we see ourselves in righteousness. We have been covered by Christ and his blood alone. We should be champions of love and encouraging people, champions of truth and love. Don't get me wrong. But how we interact with people is really telling 
That's all I'll say. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you. I know, Lord, there's a lot that was spoken here today, and I pray, Father, that the words that are mine would be forgotten. I pray that you would forgive me of my own hypocrisy, my own self-righteousness, my own self-confidence. I need you, Jesus, and I have you. And I thank you for the grace that you've given me every single day to know that I'm not in this place of a judgment, but I am your son in whom I cry, Abba, Father, Lord. And I pray that those in the same boat in this room, Lord, that we would have full confidence and assurance that we have been saved by grace. But that doesn't give us license to live how we want. You are our Lord. As every member in this room has taken a vow, Lord, you are just not our just Savior, but you are also our just Lord. And as such, Lord, you are our King. Lord, you are not just a good idea. You are King and you have authority in our lives. And I pray, Lord, that as your vassals, as your servants, Father, that you would guide us and direct us in your word, that we would humbly move out of this room and interact with a world that is bleeding and hurting and dying and crying and so lost. Let us not stand in a seat of judgment, but let us go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that you've commanded. We're so sometimes so afraid of being like a Pharisee that we forget that we are still called to obedience. And we need your help in doing that, Lord. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And I pray that you receive all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.